Uh, good after, good morning. Uh, I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Study, and I'll be your moderator for this panel. When we were discussing putting together this conference, my insistence was putting a broader picture of the history of religious liberty and its importance, something I've studied extensively and is very important to me, so I'm very glad to have the panel here today, which is pretty much my dream panel that I wanted. Um, I'm going to introduce the speakers before they speak. Our first speaker is going to be John M. Barry. He's a prize-winning New York Times best-selling author whose latest book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty, which I highly, highly recommend, focuses on the development of both the idea of separation of church and state and the first expression of individualism in a modern sense. His articles have appeared in such scientific journals as Nature and Journal of Infectious Disease, as well as in lay publications ranging from Sports Illustrated to Politico, The New York Times, Washington Post, and others. He's a frequent guest on broadcast networks and appears on such shows as Meet the Press and World News and All Things Considered. He's also served as a consultant for Sony Pictures and contributed to award-winning television do documentaries and was a football coach at Tulane, correct? We learned this last night. So he's a man of all trades. So please welcome uh, John M. Barry. <clears throat> Thank you very much. In uh, former life as a journalist uh, covering politics, I always thought Cato was one of the few think tanks on the right with real intellectual honesty, and uh, always appreciated Cato. And it's a pleasure to be here. Now, the question of uh, church and state is probably, not probably, it is the oldest argument in American history. It uh, was first articulated almost 400 years ago when John Winthrop gave what the New York Times called the greatest sermon in the last 1,000 years, which included the phrase, we shall be as a city upon a hill. Now, Winthrop's definition of Americans as a new chosen people has informed American culture ever since. But from the very beginning, there was an alternative vision. And that vision was articulated by Roger Williams, who was a Puritan minister, someone Winthrop described as godly. He was so respected that the day he arrived in Boston, Winthrop offered him the ministry of the Boston church, which he declined because it was not pure enough for him. Williams, however, envisioned a very different kind of city on a hill, a city where church and state were utterly separate, where citizens had individual freedom in the way that we understand it today. And the dispute between Winthrop and Williams defined for the first time two fault lines which have run through American history ever since. The first was obvious, a proper relation between what man has made of God, the church, and the state. The second was a little more subtle, the proper relation between a free individual and the state, the shape of liberty. But Williams' ideas, and eventually the First Amendment, did not come from any intellectual exercise or theory. They were specific responses to specific historic events. I like to talk about those events. They actually began with King James, uh, who made many Englishmen anxious by attacking England, both body and soul. When he became king, people living could remember in their own lifetimes that England had been Catholic, became Protestant, 
became Catholic again, and then became Protestant again. And each regime had persecuted, imprisoned, and executed dissenters. James was nominally Protestant, but he began pushing the Church of England closer and closer to Catholic form of worship. Although Catholics actually attempted to assassinate him, he stopped persecuting them and began to apply laws that had been designed against Catholics. He applied them against Protestant dissenters. Of Puritans, he said, he would harry them out of this land or worse, hang them, that's all. He also attacked the body of England. He edged toward absolute power. He injected the concept of the divine right of kings, which had not previously existed in England, and James came from Scotland. He injected that into English jurisprudence. His apologist said, the monarch is the law speaking. That, quote, though at his coronation he take an oath not to alter the laws of the land, yet this oath notwithstanding, he may alter or suspend any particular law for reason of state. Enter Sir Edward Cook. Uh, this audience is probably many of you are familiar with Cook. He was arguably the greatest jurist in English history. In effect, he organized the common law. He set precedents including judicial review, double jeopardy, and he pioneered the use of habeas corpus, which previously had been used actually to expand crown power. He began applying habeas corpus against the crown and used it in a form we're familiar with it. His most famous ruling came from the bench when he said, on several different occasions, the house of every man is as his castle. The house of every man is as his castle. He also had great personal courage. He told the king to his face that the king was not above the law, he was under the law. He was removed from the bench, thrown into the tower. He continued defiance and said, if the king desires my head, he knows where he may find it. When he was released from the tower, he led the opposition uh, to the crown in parliament. And when Roger Williams was about 13, Cook encountered him and was immediately impressed by what he regarded as a brilliant young boy. Uh, he took Williams on as his amanuensis. Uh, Williams went with him to personal meetings with the king, to the Star Chamber, to Parliament, pretty much everywhere. Then Cook sent him to the best school in England, and Williams later won prizes at Cambridge for his scholarship. Later, Williams said that throughout his life, he tried to live up to Cook's ideas and his example of courage. Cook had given him a deep understanding of liberty, of state power, of political reality, and of the law itself as the kind of infrastructure around which society organizes itself. Another influence on Williams was Francis Bacon. Incidentally, Thomas Hobbes was Bacon's secretary. Bacon is known as the father of the scientific method today, but he was also cha chancellor of England and James's chief apologist. Uh, Bacon and Cook despised each other, tried to destroy each other, succeeded in destroying each other, pretty much. Uh, Bacon was the one who got uh, Cook removed from the bench and thrown into the tower. 
Cook responded by having Parliament impeach Bacon, the first impeachment in 150 years. And it is a sign of Williams's independence of thought that although Cook was this great father figure, he was actually willing to accept from Bacon to learn from Bacon the scientific methodology, uh, the idea of testing hypotheses. When James' son Charles became king, he intensified the pressure on both religious and political dissenters. One bishop said, before God, it will not be well until we have our own inquisition. In politics, he began usurping even more power than his father had. And a parliamentary leader said he had wanted to, quote, postpone the business of religion to concentrate on our rights, but never was there a more clear connection between the matter of religion and the matter of state. Parliament began challenging the king on both fronts. Charles adjourned Parliament in a chaotic, violent scene. Soldiers were storming the doors, arresting parliamentary leaders as they fled. And Williams, who was then the equivalent of staff to, was, was working in the Parliament, not a member, but he was there. He witnessed this chaos from the gallery. And before England exploded in civil war a few years later, all this tension and persecution sent thousands of Puritans to America, including, of course, Winthrop and Williams. So Winthrop, as governor of Massachusetts, was determined to build a new Jerusalem for the glory of God. God informed every aspect of life in Massachusetts, including their legal code, which was written not by lawyers, but by ministers. And its first draft was called Moses' Judicials. Judicials. Uh, the society was built on conformity, and not just in a legal sense. They even frowned on individuals living alone. It was very much community, community, community. Now, Williams also wanted a godly society, but he violently disagreed with basing law on scripture or using government to compel any aspect of worship. His position derived not only from Cook, not only from Bacon's insistence on testing ideas, but from scripture itself, uh, based partly on a uh, passage in Matthew about separating wheat and tares, which Williams interpreted as allowing error to exist. Augustine interpreted the identical passage is justifying death to heretics and blasphemers. But the very fact that scripture was open to different interpretations raised the question, who's going to decide which is error and which is not error? It required, if someone was going to enforce that decision, it required a human to make a decision to judge God. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And of course, humans made errors. It followed in, in Williams's mind, because of the possibility of error, no one should force their interpretation upon another. He called this monstrous partiality. He knew when you mix religion and politics, you get politics. 
You, actually, when you mix anything with politics, you get politics. <laughs> uh, he concluded that only total and complete separation of church and state prevented the corruption of the church, and it prevented forcing someone to accept error. So he rejected the state's power to insert itself between humans and God. He was a minister in Salem. He was very popular, very respected for his devotion to God and for his scholarship. And he began to get traction in the colony. He became a threat to order. There was no theological difference between him and the Puritans who were running Massachusetts. They were solid Calvinists. But there was this difference of the view of the state's role. Massachusetts ordered, magistrates ordered him, quote, not to preach publicly on these matters, unquote, which sort of reminds you why the First Amendment links freedom of religion and freedom of speech doesn't do you much good to think whatever you want if you can't speak what you want. He refused to obey, so Massachusetts banished him for his dangerous errors and his return wrist execution. His ideas were not entirely without precedent. There were the Anabaptists, there was Castellio, there was Grotius. Williams knew all the precedents. He filtered the knowledge of them through his experiential understanding of the law and power and combined all of it in a new way. His vision was expressed in a very simple document, the Governing Compact of Providence, which he founded, as you probably all know, I'm sure you all know. When he fled Massachusetts, he founded Providence. Every other founding document in the New World, Portuguese, Spanish, English, French, Dutch, Swedish, didn't matter, they all said the colony was founded to glorify God, to carry out God's will, to spread Christianity, something to that effect. The draft Providence Compact had none of that. It only asked for God's blessing. But in the final version of the compact, Williams actually deleted the request for God's blessing. This was extraordinary, not only for the times, but for Williams personally. If you read his writing, practically every paragraph, he quotes scripture or refers to God. But in his mind, government was to be only civil. Probably uh, Rhode Island became the freest place in the world. In 1652, it actually outlawed slavery. It was a place where the soul was free, and he called it, began speaking about, quote, soul liberty. So how much influence did Williams have? He's a very controversial figure. Some historians consider him very large, a precursor to everyone from Paine to Jefferson and even Jackson. So it would include Edmund Morgan, probably our greatest colonial historian. Others consider him somewhat de minimis. One called him a magnificent failure because of the inability of Rhode Islanders to shape the destiny either of New England or the other colonies. But the truth is, Williams' ideas did shape other colonies. And ironically, that came about because Massachusetts tried to crush Rhode Island. It regarded it as this pestilence on its border, this foul corruption that might infest it with error. 
And to preserve this colony, Williams had to go back to England twice. He spent several years there. Uh, he needed the protection of the only person in the world Massachusetts was afraid of, Oliver Cromwell. Uh, and in revolutionary London, refer, which has been referred to as a, the world turned upside down, this is a place with more intellectual ferment. The king had been beheaded. They were defining the world. There was just probably more intellectual ferment than in Paris or Moscow during those revolutions. And he was a major figure in revolutionary London. Milton and Cromwell were close personal friends, so were others of that rank whose names you wouldn't recognize. He wrote numerous pamphlets and books, literally hundreds of books and pamphlets discussed his ideas, both while he was still there and after he left. Many of them quoted him, including commas and parentheses, but without attribution. This was not plagiarism. It was a sign that his ideas had been come so well known that they were separated from him and were out there by themselves. And what did he say? He made an analogy astounding in the 17th century. Quote, the church or company of worshipers is like unto a company of merchants, which companies and matters concerning their society may dissent, divide, break into schism and factions, yea, wholly dissolve, and yet, 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 Yet the peace of the city is distinct from these particular societies. He said, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. He compared it to spiritual rape. He demanded that the most Jewish, paganish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences in all nations and countries be allowed their freedom and to worship. And although he, his views always were held only by a minority. This minority had traction. For example, when Indians got word to him that Massachusetts was pressuring them to convert to Christianity, he actually convinced Cromwell to order Massachusetts to stop forcing conversions among Indians. He opposed toleration, which of course can be withdrawn. He believed in freedom of religion. But his most revolutionary statements actually were purely political. At the time, virtually everyone believed that the authority of government came from God. Even Parliament, in the middle of a civil war with the king and rejecting the idea of divine right of kings, did not dispute that God gave the king authority to govern. Williams rejected these ideas. He said a Christian magistrate was no more and no better a magistrate than one of any other conscience or religion, a statement you could not make today and get elected. And since government, in his view, was entirely secular and its power didn't come from God, where did it come from? I infer that the sovereign, original, and foundation of civil power lies in the people. Governments have no more power, nor for a longer time, than the people agreeing shall be trust them with. Now, this was revolutionary. Two years after he left England, one of his leading opponents called his ideas the masters of all our misorders. For example, the levelers, John Lilburn, and so forth, quoted him verbatim. 
But his most important impact probably came through Locke, who was certainly familiar with Williams and, in fact, lived on the same estate where Williams had been a minister before he left England. Locke scholar and Harvard Divinity School professor David Little concluded that on the question of religious toleration, quote, Locke's ideas are simply restatements of the central arguments developed by Williams in the middle of the 17th century when Locke's opinions were being shaped. Another scholar said, it's impossible to discover a, a single significant difference between the argument set forth by Williams and advanced by Locke. They scarcely differ even in the details. W.K. Jordan, who was president of Radcliffe and uh, wrote the classic study of the development of religious toleration in England, concluded that not Locke, but Williams, quote, carefully reasoned argument for the complete dissociation of church and state was the most important contribution made during the century in this significant area of political thought. And Williams's final contribution, and impact came during the restoration of the crown, Charles II, who gave Rhode Island a charter, did not establish the Church of England there, and granted total religious freedom in Rhode Island, what Charles called his little experiment. And then he liked the idea when he charted Carolina and New Jersey later, although he did establish the Church of England, he included the same language about toleration. So. It's not an accident. Our Constitution is an entirely secular document. It uses the word blessing, but it asks for the blessings of liberty. And in this room, you're probably all familiar with the fact that eight years after the Constitution was adopted, uh, the Senate unanimously passed a treaty saying the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, there is a huge difference between a nation and a government. You can argue we were founded as a Christian nation, and, and I think we were, and that we are a Christian nation, which is a little bit more controversial. But our government was founded upon liberty. And on that, I thank you. Thank you, John. Next, we'll be hearing from Doug Bandow, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as a special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune, National Interest, and the Wall Street Journal, and speaks frequently at academic conferences on college campuses and to big, into business groups. He is a regular commentator on many networks, and he holds a JD from Stanford University. Please welcome Doug Bandow. Thanks, Trevor. It's a great pleasure to be here. This is always an important issue, issues of uh, liberty and religion and how one puts together church and state. And I think it has greater urgency these days. Certainly a number of folks within the religious community are very concerned, you know, seeing challenges to their faith that they haven't seen in the past. <clears throat> I think it's worth, worthwhile considering the historical context of religious liberty issues as we you know, see the changes around us. I think what's happening in the U.S., which is affecting this debate, are changing cultural attitudes, a changing role of the state, as well as a, a changing kind of political constellation in terms of attitudes towards religious liberty and how one you know, protects religious liberty. Religious liberty has been called the first freedom. It played a, an especially important role in early America. 
you know, filled with European transplants, you know, fleeing various forms of religious tyranny. Of course, a number of them coming to America has been described actually were themselves quite willing to coerce if they had the opportunity. Nevertheless, I think the First Amendment showed real genius in attempting to simultaneously protect the free exercise of religion and barring government establishment of religion. But that necessarily creates tensions in practice that we, uh, we live with even today. <clears throat> I think what's important is to recognize that the impact of government's rules on religion in the early days were relatively limited, primarily because the federal government itself was quite limited. You know, the First Amendment was originally applied only to the national government, and the national government itself didn't do an awful lot. So you, know, you basically kept God out of public affairs because you know, most public affairs were pretty minor. That uh, if you were going to be salt and light, as Jesus enjoined his believers of Christians, you could be salt and light in most of community, most of social life, without having to worry about whatever the government rules were coming out of Washington. Since then, however, the ambit of government has greatly expanded. You know, and it affects our economic, personal, and religious liberty greatly. You know, the regulatory state inhibits believers in a number of ways of what they consider free exercise. And government itself has taken over areas once considered to be both private and very often religious. Charity, education, medicine, you know, realms that once had extraordinarily important roles of, of religious faiths, which today are very much impacted by the government, which brings along its own dictates and its own rules. And I think this process put together is creating greater social conflict and resistance to government policy today. And it's hard to imagine it being otherwise. You know, a citizen might reluctantly give way before the state dictates, you know, concerning political or personal preferences. But if you're a religious believer convinced that God requires a particular course of action, you know, you may very well feel you have little choice but to refuse a similar government demand. And no one gains from that kind of a confrontation, I think, which is the challenge that we see today which requires us to, to think through the issue of religious liberty and how to protect it, how strong it, that protection should be in a world with all of these changing going on. I mean, controversies involving relationship between faith and politics, you know, go back to humanity's beginning. I mean, politics and religion were often entwined. Officials and clerics simultaneously attempted to dominate and use one another. You know, there's no stronger buttress for political power than to claim that you're you know, responding to God's dictates, whatever God you claim to be serving. Ancient empires tended to merge the two realms. You know, in the Old Testament world, Judaism had its own state, which embodied, sustained, and protected the official faith. Christianity began as an outcast faith, of course. However, with the conversion of Emperor Constantine, Christianity became the imperial religion and then took on many of the uh, negative attributes that come you know, from that. Even after the empires collapsed, the Roman Catholic Church fought you know, for a very long time to re retain a central political role, <clears throat> a, a, a fight that had uh, you know, many battles over the years. And we still see today an Orthodox Church that uh, in the East, which kind of arose out of the division of the Roman Empire that pursues many of these same approaches today. We see, for example, a revival of the Orthodox Church and its political relations in the country of Russia. You know, but this division of Christendom I think, in general, undermined you know, this vision of united religious political order. You know, as we saw various models starting to compete, uh, Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, and other Protestant sects, Orthodox and non-Christian faiths, that this fracturing on the theological side started to create practical space for dissenters. And religion, 
And that mixed in then with political turbulence, Great Britain being for the United States you know, the, the important model where the king who wants to divorce his queen decides to get rid of the Catholic Church and start his own church. And it's kind of nice to have that power, I suppose. <clears throat> I'm going to have my church now, and we're going to do it my way. Nevertheless, I think that was a very important part of this battle where one starts seeing a pulling away within the political and religious systems as well as within the political system itself, fights between king and parliament and others. And uh, the, certainly within Christendom over time, there's been a much greater sense of development of a notion of separation of the religious and political realms. Today, I think in most countries, even some in Europe, which have vestigial state churches, that today, in essence, uh, the only question is, is there at all a public role for religion, or should it disappear? A debate, for example, over a European constitution a number of years ago, you know, what role does religion play? <clears throat> I think that uh, there's still more of a debate going on in some of the orthodox countries, and certainly within Islam, where one sees less uh, you know, a sense of separation of different realms. I think it's critically important for us to try to find some kind of consensus on the role of faith, because, you know, Religion, as opposed to politics, more powerfully drives behavior. You know, religion speaks to the transcendent. It generates principles for must as well as ought. You know, and as such, spiritual views then trump economic, political, and social opinions. Religion really is the ultimate Trump. One of my, and this is, you know, Trump not as in Donald Trump, but a different sort of Trump. One of my favorite cartoons many years ago, and I think Christianity Today, showed a room with several people around a table, and one person says, well, I see that Donald, you know, Freda, and George are for the measure, but God and I are against it. And that, I think, is the danger, the power, the extraordinary, you know, kind of oomph that comes from, you know, religion is to be able to claim that you have the divine on your side. And expecting people to violate their conscience to follow the law instead is to trust in hope <laughs> rather than experience. And this makes the spiritual impulse so very powerful, and I think in many ways for the political order so very dangerous. If I believe that God, the creator of the universe, then I'm on the side of the winner, whatever might be happening today, and it doesn't matter what short-term failures might occur, you know, that I must stand with him and therefore reject the political order. Moreover, religion naturally reaches beyond simple belief. There's been some talk recently, do we talk about a freedom of worship as opposed to freedom of religion, which suggests to some degree an internalization or privatization of faith. Christianity, at least, can't be internalized. It requires action. It motivates conduct. Believers live out their faith with others, and most, most faiths, in fact, do that. You know, religion takes on much of its power in community. You know, to be a servant of Jesus, you know, one of the, the I think, uh, your favorite parables in the New Testament is the sheep and the goats, where you have two different lines and the question of who's been good and bad during life. And you know, on the one line, the question is who is, you know, have they fed the hungry? Have people clothed the naked? Have they helped the sick? And Jesus declares, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That is, there is a religious impulse, a religious expectation that you will live out that faith. You will be salt and light. So one cannot privatize that faith. And that brings us to many of the current issues that we've been facing on the issue of business. You know, does one live one's faith out in business or not? Whether it be Hobby Lobby or many of the other cases that we have been seeing. I think if one looks at uh, you know, religious faith, what one sees essentially are concentric rings. That faith first enriches the individual, then those responsibilities radiate outward to family, to church, to other intimate forms of community. And ultimately, Christians at least are instructed by the Apostle Paul to do good to all people in the book of Galatians. 
And I think that this, kind of the question then of how you live this out has taken on greater urgency today, particularly because of the expanding role of government. Changing social attitudes matter, other things matter, but it's the changing role of government that has suddenly taken in larger swaths of our human activity. You know, that uh, politics back when we started, you know, this nation was a fairly small area of life. Very important, brutally fought. I mean, if you, we think of, uh, you know, we complain today about incivility in the political process. Well, one nearly, merely needs to go back and listen to the Adams-Jefferson and the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. And the, you know, the, I mean, these debates were as nasty as anything that we have seen today. Nevertheless, if one considers, for example, the question of Obamacare, one has taken over a whole range of activities. The reason we are now arguing about whether or not the government can mandate whether or not insurance should cover contraception is because the government has taken over an area of life in a much more dramatic way than it had in the past. That interpretations of the First Amendment, arguments over jurisprudential doctrine in the past mattered, but mattered they were much more limited as opposed to what we see today. Our luncheon speaker, uh, Professor Laycock, you know, I thought had a very nice comment in 1789, protecting churches from government regulation wasn't much of a problem because there wasn't much government regulation. That really has transformed the issue of how one protects religious expression if one views religious freedom as going beyond simply worship, simply a private kind of faith. That the, the world today is so dramatically different and the, the implications of this, I think, are extraordinary for us, these rules of engagement, the, the question of the, the engagement that we have between religion and politics. The first is how individuals and families live out their faiths, that in terms of how what one views as the dictates for one's own response to the transcendent. The second is how it affects community, you know, that it shapes how individuals work, play, and live with one another, these communal aspects of a faith. And finally, it's society more broadly, the question of, I think when people feel fairly free that their response on these most important issues are left unfettered, they're much more willing to cooperate with other citizens despite disagreements. They're much less likely to see government and politics as a scorched earth affair. To the extent you view your most fundamental religious liberties as being threatened by the state, you have a very different attitude towards what politics means. And I hear this quite honestly in my own church of people who are you're very concerned, taking attitudes that I worry about in terms of their views of the future and threats that they see. I think managing these divergent views of the transcendent is going to be the extraordinary challenge for us in the years ahead. It wasn't nearly so complicated in America's early years. It's not that we were a Christian country. You know, we had wide variety of attitudes, including a number of our early leaders who ranged from deists to free thinkers. You know, the, the notion that we created, I think, you know, certainly not a Christian government. And even if one looks at, uh, you know, America's early founding, there was a worldview, I think, that was shared. But one would have to be very careful of calling it a Christian country. You know, Thomas Jefferson, though, you know, I think despite his rather uh, deistic views, you know, asked whether the liberties of a nation can be thought secure when we have removed the only firm basis conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are gifts of God. There was an underlying sense of shared beliefs on a lot of these issues that rather, you know, made, made, I think, the issue a bit easier, where you share at least a rough sense of what you think social attitudes. Of course, America today is dramatically different. So we have, you know, a very different kind of complexion demographically, set of spiritual, to, to, spiritual beliefs, 
you know, attitudes in terms of the appropriateness of bringing those beliefs into the public process, as well as changing cultural attitudes beyond that in terms of appropriateness of different forms of uh, you know, behavior. That You put all of this together, that what we are seeing is a very different America today where these issues have become much more charged and much more difficult. And I think it's, it's certainly worth looking back and realizing that the First Amendment was an attempt to, I think, reduce that conflict try to reduce that kind of you know, challenge within society, the founders had come out of a Europe which had spent centuries in religious warfare, had spent centuries of different coercive models, had spent centuries of one group fighting for freedom and then imposing their views on another. And they certainly did not want that in the American world. So I think the challenge for us then is how do we manage to achieve the same balance today where we protect you know, this very important freedom to respond to the transcendent, whatever that vision is for us individually, and at the same time to not impose you know, that vision on others. And especially to do that in a society where the public square is constantly expanding. That you know, no longer is it simply the government runs the courthouse, but now all of a sudden the government runs the airport, it runs the hospital, it runs the school. And if not that, it funds them. I mean, I think of welfare, for example, where we have a welfare state that is government programs we have government funding of private uh, charitable groups, and we have the government providing volunteers for private charitable groups. That this constant expansion then suddenly implicates almost everything that's out there, trying to come up with rules that <laughs> can allow us to live together where we can live out our faith at the same time not imposing it has become, I think, even more challenging. And I think the underlying issue here for kind of a, a social issue or a political issue <clears throat> is that we want to you know, reduce, you know, not, we, also, we want not only to increase liberty, which to me is an extraordinarily important objective, we want to reduce the potential for social conflict over these issues. And I think society itself benefits if people don't perceive the most meaningful aspects of their lives being challenged. You know, the point is not that the First Amendment presumes that religion and theological judgments are superior to other judgments but it recognizes that somebody who holds that judgment you know, views himself as being subject to a higher power, that there's another sovereign, that there's a dual sovereignty there, that one cannot simply say, yes, whatever the president wants, but indeed I have a higher, a bigger, a more important obligation to someone else. And then bringing those two into conflict is likely to create problems, not only for the individual, but for the state. And I think this is an issue where today, at least, those who don't hold religious beliefs at times underestimate. That is, if one views religion as being kind of nonsense, then to be forced to listen to a prayer is an irritating waste of time. But to force somebody who has a faith you know, perspective, who believes something is fundamentally right or wrong, to do something, is to actually force them <coughs> to you know, act against their conscience in a very fundamental way that there's a disjunction there that it's important to recognize, that the problem caused by kind of essentially trying to suppress faith becomes greater. And that then flows not only to the individual, but to the community and to the political order as well. And that's something where I think that we all lose to the extent these things become transmitted to the political order. That indeed we live in a time where what would seem to be a small dispute, you know, whether a wedding venue allows same-sex marriages or not, and suddenly becomes a political issue, legislation, court cases, it strikes me this is not healthy for the individuals involved 
or the political order that those sorts of disputes are now suddenly transmuted in this much larger, larger realm. And I think that we have to be very careful to see you know, today that, in essence, you have to give up the external aspects of your faith simply as a price of citizenship. That certainly was not the vision of the founders, that whatever their particular theological views, they recognized that that faith was important and its application was beyond just an individual. We need to find a way in which we allow those of faith to be able to live that faith out more than just in their own home and in their you know, faith, their worship chamber, their church, their temple, their synagogue, or wherever. So I think these are extraordinary challenges for us, that we have a history that warns us of the dangers of religious conflict. And we have a history that tells us why it's important to find a way to reach social peace, find a way to come up with rules of engagement in which we can live together in a very diverse society where we have radically different visions of the transcendent. And that strikes me as the challenge today. We don't want to drive one set of citizens away to view the, the political order as being illegitimate. That's in no one's interest. And I hope that our conference today can help us try to sort through some of these issues. Extraordinarily challenging. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Well, lastly, we'll be hearing from uh, Robert P. George, the Princeton McCormick, McCormick Chair of Jurisprudence at Princeton and the founding director of James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institution. He is a chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, but did, did that just end, you said? The, your, did your term on the commission end? Free at last. Okay. <laughs> and has served on the President's Council on Bioeth Bioethics and a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's also served on UNESCO's World Commission on Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. He is the author of many books, including In Defense of Natural Law Making and Making Men Moral, Civil Liberties, and the Public Morality. He holds honorary doctorates, uh, this is a great list, in law, ethics, science, letters, divinity, civil law, humane letters, and juridical science. <laughs> He's a graduate of Swarthmore College and Harvard Law School. He holds a master's from Harvard in theology and a doctorate from, from Oxford of law. So please welcome Robbie George. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you very much. Uh, I am just delighted to be here at the Cato uh, Institute, uh, I must say, as an old-fashioned cultural uh, conservative. I feel a bit like a, a Mets fan at Yankee Stadium, uh, but more like I'm uh, visiting some second cousins, uh, perhaps once removed. Uh, uh, I uh, want to congratulate and thank my co-panelists for those splendid uh, presentations. Uh, I learned a lot from both of uh, you guys. Uh, love to talk with you more about those, uh, uh, those issues. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the theory of uh, religious liberty. My late, beloved, much-missed uh, friend, uh, Eugene Genovese, uh, the former Marxist who uh, then became a Catholic, uh, once told uh, an evangelical Protestant audience after his conversion from Marxism to Catholicism uh, that religious liberty was a pretty easy thing to understand. Uh, Professor Genovese said it means that you worship God as you want, and I worship God as he wants. Um, maybe a little more complicated uh, than that. Uh, writing from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King anticipated a challenge to the moral goodness of the acts that had landed him uh, behind bars. He anticipated his critics asking, how can you, Dr. King, engage in willful lawbreaking, which he had done, when you yourself had stressed only a few years earlier 
the importance of obedience to law in saying that the southern states' officials needed to conform their conduct to the Supreme Court's desegregation ruling in the Brown against Board of Education case. Let's listen to King's response to the challenge. The answer, I'm quoting, King says, lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral obligation to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is not a law. King goes on. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. End of the quotation. So, just laws elevate and ennoble the human personality or what King in other contexts referred to as the human spirit. Unjust laws debase and degrade it. Now, King's point about the morality or immorality of laws is a good reminder that what is true of what is sometimes called personal morality is also true of political morality. The choices and actions of political institutions at every level, like the choices and actions of individuals, can be right or wrong, morally good or morally bad. They can be in line with human well-being and fulfillment in all of its manifold dimensions, or they can fail in any of a range of ways to respect the integral flourishing of human persons, which at the end of the day is what morality is all about. In many cases of the failure of laws, policies, and institutions to fulfill the requirements of morality, we speak intelligibly and rightly of a violation of human rights. This is particularly true where the failure is properly characterized as an injustice, that particular kind of immorality we call an injustice, failing to honor people's equal worth and dignity, failing to give them or even actively denying them what they are due. Trevor kindly mentioned uh, uh, my work chairing the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. And of course, in that uh, connection for four years, I spent an awful lot of time uh, learning in uh, uh, nauseating detail uh, what people read every day in the newspapers in a bit less detail about the atrocities carried out in the name of uh, religion uh, in the Middle East and in, uh, in other places. And of course, that has been brought home to our own shores again just this uh, past weekend with the terrible murders of 50, perhaps more now, of our uh, fellow citizens, again, in the name of religion. But contrary to the teaching of the late and admittedly very great John Rawls and the extraordinarily influential stream of contemporary liberal thought of which he was the leading exponent, I wish to suggest that good is prior to right and indeed to rights. And here's what I mean. To be sure, human rights, including the right to religious liberty, are among the central principles that demand respect from all of us, including governments and international institutions, which are morally bound not only to respect human rights, but also to protect them. To respect people, to respect their dignity, is, among other things, to honor their rights, including, to be sure, the right that we're here considering today, religious freedom. 
Like all moral principles, however, human rights, including the right to religious liberty, are shaped and given content by the human goods that they protect, which means that if we have a debate about the nature of human goods or the human good, we're going to have a debate about the content of rights. Rights, like other moral principles, are intelligible as rational action-guiding principles because they are entailments and at some level specifications of the integral directiveness or prescriptivity of principles of practical reason, morality, that direct our choosing toward what is humanly uh, fulfilling and enriching, or as Dr. King would say, uplifting of the human spirit, and away from what is contrary to our well-being as the kind of creatures we are, creatures with the sort of nature we have, that is, human persons. And so, for example, it matters to the identification and defense of the right to life, a right violated not only when the death of another is sought as one's end or as a means to one's end, but also in cases in which someone's death is foreseen and accepted unfairly as a side effect of one's uh, action in pursuit of an end, that human life is no mere instrumental good, but is an intrinsic aspect of the good of human persons, an integral dimension of our overall flourishing. If we have a debate about the nature of the good of human life itself, whether it's merely an instrumental good or is actually an intrinsic good of the human being, we're going to have a debate about the nature of the right to life. And it matters to the identification and defense of the right to religious liberty that religion is yet another irreducible aspect of human well-being and fulfillment, what some philosophers call a basic human good. Now, there's a controversial statement for you. Religion is part of the good of human beings. And to defend it, I'm going to have to say a word about what religion is, something that uh, uh, judges, uh, Judge Pryor, you're out there somewhere, uh, frequently say they cannot do. In its fullest and most robust sense, religion is the human person's being in right relation to the divine, the more than merely human source or sources, if there be such, of meaning and value. Now, of course, even the greatest among us in the things of the spirit fall short of perfection in various ways. But in the ideal of perfect religion, the person would understand as comprehensively and deeply as possible the body of truths about spiritual things and would fully order his or her life and share in the life of a community of faith that is ordered in line with those truths. In the perfect realization of the good of religion, one would achieve the relationship that the divine, say God himself, assuming for the moment the truth of monotheism, wishes us to have with him. Now, of course, different traditions of faith have different views of what constitutes religion in its fullest and most robust sense, what counts as the right relation to the divine. There are different doctrines, different scriptures, different structures of authority, different ideas about what is true regarding spiritual things and what it means to be in proper relationship with the more than merely human sources of meaning and value that different traditions from Christianity to Buddhism and everything in between understand as divinity. Now, for my part, I believe that reason has a very large role to play for each of us in deciding where spiritual truth most robustly is to be found. This is a big debate within uh, religion. There are Kierkegaardians like my friend uh, Cornell West who think that reason has really very little role to play in figuring out what spiritual truth of things is. I'm at the opposite pole in that one. And by reason here, I mean not only our capacity for practical reasoning and moral judgment, but also our capacities for understanding and evaluating claims of all sorts that are made by religions, logical, historical, scientific, and so forth. But one need not agree with me about this high role of reason in 
the quest for religious truth, in order to affirm with me that there is a distinct aspect of human well-being and fulfillment, a distinct human good, a good that is uniquely architectonic in shaping one's participation in all of the human goods, that one begins to realize and participate in from the moment one begins the quest to understand the more than merely human sources of meaning and value and to live authentically by ordering one's life in line with one's best judgments of the truth in religious matters. And this, it seems to me, even the most devout atheist, even my old Oxford pal Richard Dawkins, ought to be able to affirm that there is a good of the human person that consists in raising the great existential questions, reflecting on them in a serious way, making an effort to answer them uh, in an honest way, not with wishful thinking or ideology, and then living authentically and with integrity as best one can in light of one's best judgments, whether they are theistic or atheistic, uh, whether they correspond with the view of this or that historic faith. If I'm right then, the existential raising of religious questions, the honest identification of answers, the fulfilling of what one sincerely believes to be one's duties in light of those answers are all parts of this complex good of religion, a good whose pursuit is an indispensable feature of the comprehensive flourishing of a human being. Dawkins wouldn't want to live his life without asking those questions, trying to live in conformity with his best judgments. He would consider a diminished, a diminished life for someone to simply avoid them or to uh, uh, lead an inauthentic life where one professed beliefs that one in fact doesn't have in order to get ahead or keep a job or get a job or be socially uh, uh, more important or what have you. He wouldn't want his children uh, to lead lives that ignored uh, those questions and obligations. But if that's true, then respect for a person's well-being, or more simply respect for the person, respecting a person means respecting his well-being, demands respect for his or her flourishing as a seeker of religious truth and as a man or woman who lives in line with his best judgments of what's true in spiritual matters. And that, in turn, requires respect for religious liberty, liberty in the quest for religious truth. Because faith of any type, including religious faith, cannot be authentic. It cannot be faith unless it is free. You can coerce the outward, Locke made this point, you can coerce the outward signs of expressions of faith, but not the inward acts of intellect and will that are actually constitutive of faith, requires respect for her or his religious liberty. That's why it makes sense from the point of view of reason and not merely from the point of view of a revealed teaching of any particular faith to understand religious freedom as a fundamental human right, one grounded in, shaped by the value of the religious quest and of living authentically and with integrity in view of one's judgments. Now, interestingly and tragically in times past, and of course even today, as we were reminded this weekend, regard for a person's spiritual being has been the premise, the motivating factor for denying religious liberty or conceiving of it in a cramped and restricted way. Before the Catholic, I myself am a Catholic, before the Catholic Church embraced the robust conception of religious freedom that honors the civil right to give public witness to sincere religious views, even when erroneous, in the document Dignitatis Humanae of the Second Vatican Council, some Catholics rejected the idea of a right to religious freedom on the theory that, to use the old slogan, only the truth has rights, or the inverse of that, error has no rights. The idea was that the state, under favoring conditions, should not only publicly identify itself with Catholicism as the true faith, but forbid religious advocacy or proselytizing that could lead people into religious error and apostasy. Now, the mistake here is not in the premise. Religion is a great human good, and the truer the religion, 
the better for the fulfillment of the believer. That's true. The mistake, rather, was in the supposition made by some that the good of religion was not being advanced or participated in outside the context of of the one true faith, and that it could be reliably protected and advanced by placing civil restrictions enforceable by state agencies on the advocacy of religious ideas. In rejecting this supposition, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council did not embrace the idea that error has rights. They noticed, rather, that people have rights, and they have rights even when they are in error. And among those rights, integral to authentic religion as a fundamental and irreducible aspect of the human good, is the right to express and even advocate in line with one's sense of one's conscientious obligations what one believes to be true about spiritual matters, even if one's beliefs are in one way or another less than fully sound, and indeed, even if they're false. Now, I've uh, sometimes assigned the document Dignitatis Schumanae in uh, courses addressing uh, religious uh, liberty, not only because, uh, given that the Catholic Church is the world's largest uh, religious organization and one with profound uh, importance uh, worldwide, but also because the argument that's presented uh, in the document is very interesting. I've always stressed to my students the importance of reading it in uh, the light of another document of that same council, the document known as Nostra Aetate, which uh, uh, developed the church's teaching on the non-Christian religions. In Nostra Aetate, the fathers of the council pay tribute to all that is true and holy, implying and then explicitly saying that there's much that's good and worthy in non-Christian faiths, including Hinduism and Buddhism, and of course especially Islam and most especially Judaism. In so doing, they give recognition to the ways in which religion, even where it does not include the defining content of what the fathers, as Catholics, believe to be religion in its fullest and most robust sense, namely the incarnation of Jesus Christ, enriches, ennobles, and fulfills human persons in the spiritual dimension of their being, that spiritual quest, living authentically in line with one's conscientious judgments, avoiding wishful thinking, ideology, pretending. And this is to be honored and respected, the Council Fathers say, because the dignity of the human being requires it. That's why the document is called Human Dignity, Dignitatis Humani. Naturally, the non-recognition of Christ as the Son of God must count for the Fathers as a falling short in the non-Christian faiths, even the Jewish faith in which Christianity is itself rooted and which stands according to developed Catholic teaching in an unbroken and unbreakable covenant with God, just as the proclamation of Christ as the Son of God must count as an error in Christianity from a Jewish or a Muslim point of view. But the fathers teach, this does not mean that Judaism and Islam are simply false and without merit, just as neither Judaism nor Islam, as practiced by millions of honorable, good uh, Muslim believers, teaches that Christianity is simply false and without merit. Islam doesn't teach that. Judaism doesn't teach that. On the contrary, these traditions enrich the lives of their faithful in their spiritual dimensions, thus contributing vitally to their fulfillment, whatever errors they may contain. Now, of course, from the point of view of any believer, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian, whether you're Jewish, whether you are Sikh, the further away one gets from the truth in all of its dimensions, the less fulfillment is available. But that doesn't mean that even a primitive and superstition-laden faith, much less the faiths of those advanced civilizations, uh, as the uh, fathers of the council uh, call them, is utterly devoid of value or that there is no right to religious liberty for people who practice such a faith. Nor does it mean that atheists have no right to religious freedom. To the contrary, 
The fundaments of respect for the good of religion require that civil authority respect, and in appropriate ways even nurture, conditions or circumstances in which people can engage in the sincere religious quest and live lives of authenticity reflecting their best judgments as to the truth of spiritual matters. My old friend Charles Haynes, I was able to watch a bit, Charles, of the uh, presentation earlier, and uh, Charles came back to a point that he's made effectively so many times uh, over uh, the years and now uh, decades about the way teaching about religion, even to children who are not of a particular religion, when it's done in an honorable and fair way, enriches the lives of everyone concerned, not simply in their intellectual dimension, but I would argue in the spiritual as well. To compel an atheist to perform acts that are premised on theistic beliefs that he cannot in good conscience share is to deny him the fundamental bit of the good of religion that is his, namely living with honesty and integrity in line with his best judgments about ultimate reality. Camus, who in many ways you would have to regard as a spiritual master, was not a believer, but he's a person whose fulfillment uh, was pursued in an especially remarkable way through the quest. The quest for truth, the quest to live, the struggle to live authentically and with integrity in line with his best judgments, even though they were not theistic. Coercing such a person to perform religious acts that he doesn't believe in does him no good, since faith really must be free, and it dishonors his dignity as a free and rational person. The violation of liberty is worse than futile. Now, of course, there are limits to the freedom that must be respected for the sake of the good of religion and the dignity of the human person as a being whose integral fulfillment includes the spiritual quest and ordering one's life in line with one's best judgments as to what spiritual truth requires. As we have seen, yet again, gross evil, even grave injustice, can be committed by sincere people, not only in the name of religion, but for the sake of religion. We cannot simply uh, write this off by saying, well, people act in the name of religion when they do these wicked things, but they're actually just acting in the name of religion. It's not for the sake of religion. No. Unspeakable wrongs can be done and have been done by people seeking sincerely to do God's will, sincerely to get right with God or the gods or their conception of ultimate reality, whatever it is. The presumption in favor of respecting religious liberty must, for the sake of the human good and the dignity of the human person, be strong, powerful, broad, but it isn't and can't be unlimited. Even the great good of getting right with God cannot justify a morally bad means, even for the sincere believer. I don't doubt the sincerity of the Aztecs in practicing human sacrifice or the sincerity of those in various traditions of faith, including my own, who've used coercion and even torture in what they believe to be good causes. Doug spoke about this. But these things are deeply wrong and need not and should not be tolerated, cannot be tolerated in the name of freedom of religion. To suppose otherwise is to back oneself into the decidedly awkward position of supposing that violations of religious freedom and other injustices of equal gravity must be respected for the sake of religious freedom, and that can't possibly be right. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Robbie. We have about 10 minutes for questions. Uh, you can raise your hand. Uh, I'll get the mic down to you. Um, here for Roger. Roger. Um, you can state your name and affiliation, but I believe in anonymous speech, so you do not have to. Uh, but please uh, ask a question. Uh, if it ends in a question mark. Yes, I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, Robbie, I want to uh, uh, put uh, pressure just a little bit. Um, 
I perked up when I heard you say that the um, good is prior to the right and even to rights. Uh, and uh, I perked up because of the well-known epistemological problems surrounding propositions about the good, everyone from David Hume to G.E. Moore to economists who tell us there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> and uh, given that, uh, in such areas as, say, speech and the First Amendment, uh, we defend uh, the, uh, the right uh, to be wrong in any number of ways. And so I'm wondering if, at least in the political context, if it's not the case that the right is superior to the good. The right is prior to the good. I didn't say prior, superior to the me, right. The prior, right is prior yes. to the good. So I'm rejecting Rawls' anti-perfectionism, the idea that you can come up with a theory of rights. Now, I, I do think having a theory of rights is important. So I'm not one of those people who, uh, like uh, Joan Lockwood O'Donovan and some other uh, political theorists who say, well, look, the very idea of rights is corrupt. It's associated with a kind of uh, radical individualism that celebrates uh, self selfishness uh, and all that stuff. No, I think rights are very important. But what I reject is what John Stuart Mill, with whom I disagree on some other important points, such as his utilitarianism, what John Stuart Mill rejected when he rejected uh, the idea of basing liberty in his essay on liberty in the first uh, chapter on the concept of abstract right. Remember, he says, I forego any advantage to my argument based on appeal to abstract right. And then he says, unfortunately, from my point of view, I like what he just said, but then he says, I consider utility to be the ultimate arbiter in all moral matters. I think you can take his basic insight that rights don't fall down from the heavens, that they're, 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 there's got to be a basis for them. There has to be a ground in human nature and human good, for human nature and therefore human good, the well-being of human beings of, uh, uh, for them. Uh, that doesn't alter in any way their stringency. My only problem with Mill is that he conceives uh, uh, the human good in a utilitarian uh, fashion. And that I just don't think can be sustained, mainly because of the diversity of human goods. There's not just one, but there are many uh, aspects of human well-being and fulfillment that give us more than sufficient, more than merely instrumental uh, reasons for action. And they cannot be brought, uh, it's a long argument, I've made it in various places, they cannot be brought uh, into commensurability with each other so that we can make coherent either Bentham's maxim to do what is for the greatest good of the greatest number, or the more sophisticated contemporary, uh, sophisticated contemporary utilitarian version of that, which is that you should choose that option in morally significant circumstances of choice that promises to produce the net best proportion to benefit and harm, whether your, your maxim and your concept of benefit and harm is hedonic, as in uh, Bentham's sense, or is, is uh, something else. So I need a replacement for utilitarianism, but I think that it's critical that we uh, go with Mill on the idea of rejecting abstract rights. So even a fundamental freedom like the right to speak things that are wrong, the right to say things that aren't true, is rooted in the value for the human being and relatedly the value for the community, Mill was right about that, the value for the community of honoring freedom of speech. The right itself isn't abstract. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from something, and the something is the integral well-being of people who we value enough to ascribe rights to. The people we think have something that those creatures like amoeba uh, or even uh, worms that we do not ascribe rights to.
My name is Stephen Shaw. I think of the two great crises uh, uh, in American history, the revolution, where many of the Tories thought that we you know, uh, followed what St. Paul wrote in one of his epistles, obey God, honor the king, and could not find any religious reason to take up arms against Great Britain, and the American Civil War, where Lincoln himself, in the second inaugural, said both sides pray to the same God. And Aristotle himself said some men are slaves by nature. And this was, I think, the official teaching of the Roman Church, which was hardly prominent in the abolition movement, and viewed the abolition of slavery as um, not in accord with tradition or with, with scripture or natural law, for that matter. Bobby, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, what was the question? The question was, question yeah, yeah, was, that's what I was. So in cases like these, where men and women of good faith take up arms, as they did in the case of the Revolution and the American Civil War, essentially, do you not have to fall back purely on civil law rather than give any objective credence to religious beliefs of the combatants? Well, if that's for me, I don't see how you possibly could, and, and really here for the reasons that King articulated so well in those remarks that I uh, opened my presentation with from the, uh, from the Birmingham jail. Uh, there's got to be something under which the merely human law stands in judgment that enables us to say, that law is unjust. Now, where does that something come from? And here, King, uh, in language that I have to admit, I just delight in throwing into the faces of my liberal colleagues at Princeton, <laughs> talks about the natural law, the eternal law, the law of God, quoting St. Augustine and St. Thomas uh, uh, Aquinas. He's not just blowing smoke there. Uh, he, that, that, he, he's, a, he's a sophisticated, you know, Boston, Charles Boston University uh, PhD uh, in theology. He, he knows this tradition, and it's not just rhetoric. His, his big worry, the reason he thinks that you need a foundation in the natural law or the law of God is because otherwise you have no standard by which to judge the merely uh, human law. Now, you might say, yeah, but at least the, the human law is more or less um, objective in the sense that people can read it and, and know what it says. We have reason to know from our own experience with courts that that is a bit exaggerated, but still there's something to it. When there, even the purest and ablest men and women have disagreed about fundamental morality, to which my answer, and I assume King's answer, would be, sorry, life's tough. In this veil of tears, we are going to disagree even about fundamental things. And what we need to strive to do is to keep our disagreements civil, learn to be people of conviction, willing to fight for their convictions, willing to try to, to win, but to try to win victories that we know can never ever be anything but tentative, subject in a democratic process to being reversed someday for better or for uh, worse, and reminding ourselves that whatever we may think about a church or a pope's infallibility, we're not infallible, and it could be that we're wrong, so we had better be open to argument. But even so, don't you think that that foundation would come from within one's own self, one's own conscience, and that coming to understand what, what you think at that level is come to understand who yourself is, mm -hmm. so that it's not going to appeal to anything outside of yourself. 
is always going to then raise the question, what is the foundation for your belief in that? And ultimately, oh, yeah. but someone that's has not to say, I believe it because this is what I believe to be true. Well, that's just a tautological word, right? I believe it because, be true, I, then. because I believe it. Uh, what you're probably going to be consulting is what Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes called your viscera. Uh, he, you're going to be uh, consulting your, your feelings. Um, as tough as actual argument and civil engagement on fundamental issues is concerned, I go around the country doing this with, with Cornell, with Cornell, Cornell West. It's, 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 it's tough. You've got to think hard. You, know? you disagree. You hate disagreeing. You wish you could come together on some, uh, some things. But as, as, as hard as that is, and as difficult as it is to reach agreed-upon conclusions, it's still better than just essentially saying, well, this is how I feel. You know, we need to reason about these things, and we need, this is why I said I have a high view of reason in these matters, and we need to reason about these things together. We can't just look inward. Conscience doesn't actually work that way. Conscience is not some faculty independent of reason by which we figure out what is morally true. Conscience, conscience is nothing other than one's last best judgment on the basis of faith and reason as to what one must do or must not do. But, but why, the question is, why do you think it's true, right? You're, I mean, if, if all you're saying is that you should act on your convictions, oh, yeah, absolutely. But then the question is, how should you shape your convictions? How should you inform your conscience? And that requires thinking, arguing, being open to argument, recognizing your own fallibility, having the virtue, developing the virtue of intellectual humility, and at the same time, being a person of conviction willing to act. Ding, ding, ding. I'm bringing a red light. No, you're good. Just perfect. <laughs> I'll th join. Uh, do you want me to... Thank you, oh, our panel, sorry, please. Sorry, sorry.